0: That was me. <laughs> so sometimes sermons are things that are relevant to everybody. Sometimes they're not. Um, so just a little warning if you know, find yourself in the middle of this thing and go, eh, figure out something else to do. Uh, you know, just don't get up and walk out, okay? Um, it's, it's an acquired taste sometimes what, uh, what preachers say. Um, we're, we're looking at Noah this morning. We're going to um, look at, you know the story, right? You, you get the idea of Noah. Noah lived a really long time, and uh, he had some kids, and they lived a really long time. And uh, they built an ark when nobody knew what that was. And the stories we heard in Sunday school, you know all of that. We're going to take a deeper look into it and uh, pay attention to some of the things that maybe we just haven't uh, paid attention to. The picture that'll be up here during the sermon, this is from the Sistine Chapel. Um, I, I remember when we walked in, we were privileged to be there a few years ago, and when we walked in, I, I remember the guy talking about the that Michelangelo kept changing perspectives because when he first started, he realized all the figures were, t- were small and they were all in perspective, but you couldn't see anything from all the way on the floor. And so as time goes on, he makes them bigger characters. But these are the first ones. You walk in, these are the first few panels. Um, this is one of them. And, uh, and we'll talk about this in a little bit. Let's pray together. God, if there's truth in this... Um, in these words, may that stand out. stand out, Where there's just conjecture and, and uh, opinion. God, uh, may we take it all with a grain of salt. May we learn together uh, what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So I've said it before, and I'll say it to you again, that myth, story, and truth are not mutually exclusive. Sometimes when people use the term myth... They think, oh, it's a made-up thing, and that it's not true. Um, sometimes you say, well, we're going to tell a story. It's like, well, you just thought it up, and you tell a story. But that's not true either, is it? Um, you tell stories about your family that have elements of truth in them. And sometimes you, you, <laughs> sometimes you embellish so you make the story more interesting. Sometimes you embellish so you make the story more interesting. Um, Oh, what would be the right word? Um, something you could stomach. And, um, and the truth it can be found in them, even if you make the story a big fish story, right? And so um, Tolkien and Lewis, uh, C.S. Lewis and, and J.R.R. Tolkien, were great friends. And Tolkien was a Catholic believer when Lewis was at best an agnostic. Um, he started off being quite the atheist, I think, in his thinking. And he moved gradually away from that to being an honest agnostic. And then in his exchanges with Tolkien, at some point, he becomes a theist, believes in God, and eventually a Christian. It's a real progress in his life. Lewis was a great admirer of all the world's great myths, of the great big epic stories, the Iliad and the Odyssey and Greek myths, but he was particularly interested in Nordic myth. He admired all of those northern uh, religious sort of stories of of Odin and Loki and Thor and Freya. And I'm sorry Chris left the room, but but, um, I think that Lewis would be amused, um, interested, and appalled by their depictions in recent movies. Um, All the Marvel films that use Loki and Odin and Thor and them um, have elements of these ancient myths. But um, I think Lewis would have been uh, both amused and quite appalled at how they're retold as time goes on. Tolkien at some point challenged Lewis to believe the gospel. And one of the arguments that he made to Lewis was this. All those things that you love about those Nordic myths, he would say to Jack, was what they called him. All those those things you love, the heroic God dying for others and coming back to life, has happened in Christianity. That's really amazing. The Tolkien just went with Lewis's passions and said the very thing you're passionate about is real in this world. It's not made up. It's a myth you can count on. There's truth in it, in the Christian one. Well, Tolkien Tolkien and Lewis went on to write great mythological stories. Uh, Tolkien, The Hobbit, and The Lord of the Rings trilogy, among other things, and uh, C.S. Lewis, The Chronicles of Narnia. It was Lewis who encouraged Tolkien to um, publish The Hobbit. Tolkien was a perfectionist, and he would make changes, and he was writing languages, and all, he, he's doing all this stuff. And The Hobbit was just this wonderful tale, and he would read it, different chapters of it. They would read chapters of what they were doing in their small group called the Inklings. And uh, Tolkien would read it, and finally Lewis said, you've got to get this out. And so Tolkien did, and, and that uh, uh, story is a stor- big story on its own. And uh, Lewis would read parts of Chronicles of the Narnia to everybody and uh, Tolkien hated it. He just thought they were childlike, silly, not very detailed and, uh, and Lewis just casually wrote them one a year. For seven years he wrote seven books and Tolkien hated him for it. Um, because Tolkien labored over his work and thought that um, Narnia was just too quick and too easy. But on the idea of myth, they would agree that the details don't have to be actual events for it to be true. In fact, Tolkien, when he wrote The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, talked about the characteristics he believed to be true in our world. Lewis did the same thing. I mean, Aslan is simply a lion in, and a great lion in the Chronicles of Narnia. But Jesus embedded in him, in that lion, the very characteristics of Jesus and how he viewed him. They don't have to be true. They don't have to be actual events for them to be true. We've talked, I've talked about it before with the Odyssey. Why does the Odyssey endure? Because every human being can see parts of their journey in that journey. Um, Joseph Campbell wrote a series of of books just about um, the hero's journey and how the hero's journey is what we all participate in. So we all participate in the journey of Ulysses and the Trojan Wars and all those things. It doesn't have to be actual events for it to be true about human nature and true about our world. Um, the story of Sisyphus pushing that rock up that mountain and having it roll back down all the time. How many of you have experienced a Sisyphean moment in your life where you just keep shoving it back up and it keeps falling down? My, I had a friend that challenged me to work Sisyphean into, into sermons and sentences. And so, Don, I hope you listen today um, that I've worked it in once again into a sermon. Or the story of Arthur. I mean, think of how in and endearing the story of King Arthur is and the Knights of the Round Table and what an admirable set of qualities that it portrays and they become part of human truth and vision because of them there are three fantastical parts of the Bible that I consider to be absolutely necessary to also be fact the others can be viewed in lots of ways I believe that God, creator, sustainer, and redeemer created the world, that the Trinitarian God we know created the world and all that's in it. And at the ultimate of that moment, he created human beings to be in relationship with him. And that relationship was broken. I believe these are facts that are told in a big story way. And the third fact that I this fantastical. C.S. Lewis was once asked, do you believe in miracles? He goes, well, I believe that, that a man was ro- risen from the dead, came back to life. So yeah, I suppose I do believe in miracles. And so that Jesus was born, lived, died, and was raised again from the dead to redeem us and to fix what was broken. I believe those are facts. And they're fantastical facts, aren't they? They're things that you take on faith. You can't go back and prove them. You can trust them. Noah's a challenging story at best for all of us. If all of its elements have to be fact, it gets really hard. I'm happy to be proved wrong at the end of time. If God says, listen, I did that and I'm still standing there in front of God, and and I get to meet Noah and the family, then, um, okay, I'm happy to be proved wrong. But I'm not going to worry about it, and I'm not going to miss the point of the story. What troubles me when I read Noah are these things, and probably more, but a few of them. The very ruthless nature of God, troubles me. Really, only Noah was good enough? We'll get back to that in a minute. But really, come on, every human being on the planet was destroyed except Noah and his family. That's a hard God to believe is loving. There are lots of flood stories in the ancient world and and we believe that, that that the cradle of civilization for us in these stories is between the Tigris and Euphrates River. So the area near Babylon, Iraq. And there were lots of flood stories. And living between those two rivers, certainly there would have been floods worse than what we've seen this winter. And we've seen waters rise and towns destroyed and... And banks overflown. And we've seen water in the streets where people used to drive cars and they had boats. There's lots of them. But really, covering the whole planet in water again? It's hard to believe. Seven pairs of all clean animals and birds and one pair of all unclean animals. I know there's rules about what's clean and what's not clean, but that's a lot of animals. (laughs) Seven pairs. Have you ever had just try to corral seven cats? (laughs) Then pair them up and put them in there. No. My daughter came across country a year ago with two cats in her car with my wife. And they had to corral those two cats every morning after they stopped and put him back in the cage and they came back with scars from that encounter (laughs) Noah's age is a tough one for me I don't know about you but it says that he was 500 years old when Ham Shem and Japheth were born we watched our uh, grandson last night at downtown Disney in in that area for a few hours and I was exhausted (laughs) I'm nowhere near 500 years old, though I might look like it at times. (laughs) And they were 100 years, the boys were 100 years old, and Noah 600 when they started to work on the ark. That's a hard fact that is hard for me to believe. The ark was 300 cubits by 50 cubits by 30 cubits. A cubit is the distance from here to here. And even if you're Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and your arms are a little bit longer, and it's like from here to there, three feet maybe, three feet gives you um, a 900-foot-long boat. That's less than a football field. And all the animals are going to get in that. That's hard. There's not room enough for everyone. This and more are problematic for those who didn't adopt these stories early in life. For those of us that adopted them early in life, we we saw them as great stories. We may even say, yeah, we believe it. We we look for evidence of the Ark on Mount Ararat, and people it keeps popping up in the news sometimes, and somebody's found another piece of wood um, that they think is part of it. And not to demean their work. But I find that having to defend them as an adult is misspent energy. When the harder part of loving my neighbor goes ignored. And Jesus said that was really important. So how does this story get bigger when most Western thinking can't ignore the details and just wants to dismiss it? I, I really appreciated Mark Laberton last week in the video we watched. And if you didn't see it, go back online and watch the sermon from last week and watch the service. I, maybe it's not on there. That is on that. service is on there and then the sermon is also on there. Oh, good. So watch that video if you didn't see it last week. And Mark just said uh, that, that religious people, particularly Christian people, take big things and make them small. That was his, well, communication from his dad. And he said when he read the New Testament, Mark was the president of Fuller Seminary, and he said, I believe that that's what Jesus was saying, that religious people make great things small so they can manage them. So how do we make this bigger? And I think we do it by focusing on what it means. Its truth is not in the details, but the details make it a great story. And in the story, we'll find the truth. The truth is in the details, but not the details themselves. So Leslie Newbegin, this Scottish missionary that I've shared with you in the past, in his little book, A Walk Through the Bible... We we left off last week with Cain and Abel, and remember what he said. He said, murder, jealousy, strife become the order of the day from Cain and Abel on. And the whole human world degenerates into chaos in a spiral of violence. It's demonstrated in Cain and Abel you are your brother or sister's keeper, but it didn't go as planned. Newbigin goes on to say, and so the point comes when God is sorry that he started the experiment. He decided to wipe the earth clean. To wipe the earth clean of the evil race keeping only one family to make a fresh start, the family of Noah. Listen to Genesis 6. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Wow. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the ground, man and beast and creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Genesis 6, 9 says this, Noah walked with God. Noah did what God asked. That's how Noah found favor. Was Noah perfect? No. We'll hear a little bit of that story later as well. We are told that his faith, believing God and doing what God asked, was reckoned to him as righteousness. We learned that from the writer of Hebrews. That believing God was enough. Noah will prove that he's no saint. As will most of God's chosen leaders. They will prove. David, the apple of God's eye, an adulterer and a murderer, but still the apple of God's eye. Time and again, the human leader ends up being far from the the righteous person that they were intended to be. Let me just suggest this about the story of Noah, that grace is how this story gets bigger and bigger for everyone. If you're a literalist about the story, don't miss the point. Don't get caught up in your details. If you can't get your head around the fantastic elements, don't discard the truth. And in both instances, it's Grace. The problems that stem from the garden and from Cain and Abel are easy to observe in, human, uh, in humanity. How can this be? I mean, that's what the writers are trying to figure out. How can it be that what started off so good could get so bad? What's to be done? It's in God's power to wipe it all out and start over. It is that serious because it's that bad. How do we make sense of the flood that wiped out so many in our area? Maybe Noah and his family made a lifeboat and survived because they walked with God. Maybe that's the real part. But what really happened was they read the signs and they heeded the voice. God doesn't destroy everything. There was still something worth saving, still something good about what God made at the beginning and declared good. And it's us. And there's hope in God. Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel depiction of Noah has three parts. So the first is the flood. The second is the sacrifice of Noah at the back end of the flood when they get off the ark. And the third part of the picture is Noah's drunkenness and debauchery. Why? The last depiction is included Noah's drunkenness and his debauchery and the judgment that falls on Noah is depicted to show how short lived our memories are. Lived a long time, apparently, and he forgot pretty quickly. How quickly we forget, even after our religious rituals. But the focus today for us is on the first image. There's an article I read, published, published um, in a Catholic publication called uh, Spectatio Divina. And they're looking at this panel by Michelangelo. And if you've been there, um, you actually need binoculars to see the details. It really is. It's way up there and you can't. And, you know, and your neck gets tired. And, and it's... It just looks like a lot of the same stuff. Um, It's hard to pick out the details. And he changed his perspective later to make it simpler. But one of my earlier objections to the story, and for many, many people, is the idea that only Noah was good enough. A lot of people, the ruthlessness of God in this is hard to stomach. And it was hard for Michelangelo to stomach. So, this is where things get bigger as Michelangelo interprets the story as he reads the story and puts it up in a picture. The writer of this article says this It's a sobering scene. A husband carries his wife on his back. This is all these people on this rock. A a husband carries his wife on his back up the hill. A mother tries to save her two babies. A father hoists his adult son onto the rock. Couples hold each other. These are supposed to be the people who are evil through and through. But that's not the impression that we get. Instead, we see people who love each other. They are mothers and fathers, innocent children. Are they really that bad? And so Michelangelo forces us to deal with the most difficult part of the story, the fact that God killed lots of people. Was everyone really that bad? What I think he does here is pose a different question, and I think this is just a brilliant read of the whole story. Are you any different from them? Michelangelo is asking us a question of as his own reading of the story. And I would ask it as I read the story, are we any different from those people? Would I have been facing the same fate as them? And I've got to say, I think I would. I think I would. Hold that. There's one more detail in the depiction of the ark. It's not in the text, but it's his interpretation. There are three guys that are in the water. There's, the ark is the boat, right? Not a big thing. But there's three guys in there, and they're being pulled into The boat. Now there's always four, already four men in the boat Noah, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Who are the other three that Michelangelo puts in it? And this is what this author says Three guys are getting pulled into the ark. They can't be Noah's sons because there are at least four men on board. This seems to be Michelangelo's way of depicting grace. When the waters rise, these three didn't simply look for higher ground or find a little boat for themselves, both of which are logical actions as the water rises. They turn toward the thing that will really save them. They finally believed Noah's warnings. They believed God, and so they too were saved. They reached out to the only one who could save them. And if that's not grace, I don't know what is. The story gets really big when we realize we've never made it, we would have never made it onto the ark. When we turn not to ourselves, but to, to the one who makes a way for us. Will you, as a congregation, be a people who believe you're on the ark Lift up those around by extending a hand of grace and mercy to be joined. And not be happy just to be on the ark. Don't miss miss the truth of the story of Noah. It's not about building a big enough boat And how clever they were to get animals two by two. It's not about all that stuff. It's about God making a way when a way was not deserved. We've been hoisted up. We know the end of the big story. We know the parts that must be fact but can only be accessed by faith. We know what it means to trust and believe. It will not be attained through intellectual assent or argument. It's grace. One of our Bible studies is studying the um, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And it's good to hold as you're reading mere Christianity and any other book that seems like an apology or a, a case for Christianity, as its as it said in that. And that is this: that Lewis will say, for all of his cleverness, for all of his intellect, that there's a point at which none of his intellect matters, that you reach a point where you can't explain any further, and you have to make a choice to believe. Tillich said it this way, there's a leap of faith that has to happen to access the truth of what we say we believe. The story of Noah is about undeserved love. We call it grace. Can we be a people who live that out Stop focusing on the wrong things. The details make for a great story, but don't miss the truth. Pray with me. God, I'm just not sure um, one way or the other about all that I've said except that you've extended grace to me and that as you've done that, um, you've made a difference in my life. May I focus on that grace and may I be gracious to all. In Jesus' name. Amen.